We're here for Pride. You're in the right spot, which is always a weird thing to advertise, but thanks for coming. So um, my name is James Osinski. I serve um, kind of in our, our Berks County, Lehigh Valley area. I've been serving at Kutztown and DeSales. And if you're on one of the Lehigh Valley campuses, you'll, you may see me and my wife, Shannon, a little bit more going forward. Um, so my wife, Shannon, and I, we always have our eyes on the housing market. We have a dream to buy a home one day, settle down in the near future, all those things. Now, from our experience looking at the market, when homes go up for sale, they, they tend to advertise the same things. Square footage, open concept, affordable price, large yard, finished basement, you know, all of those things. However, there was one home that Shannon and I saw that had the strangest sign in front of it. It said, for sale, we checked for bugs. <laughs> I'm like, that's odd. Why would it say that? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized the value of that sign. See, one of the worst problems a home can have is bugs. Bugs like ants, termites, bed bugs. If your home is infested with those things, the value diminishes. See, think about termites for a second. Termites, they eat at wood. They eat at the skeleton, at the foundation of the home. To repair termite damage, I looked it up. Uh, if you catch it early enough, you're looking at a few thousand dollars to eradicate the termites and repair the foundation. If termite damage is severe enough, your home's destroyed. See, the most deadly part about termites is that they can be destroying the foundation of your home and you have no idea. Your home could be rotting from the inside out and it's totally invisible to you. I want to make the case that the same thing is actually true about pride. Pride has the power to destroy our souls from the inside out and we have no idea that it's happening. I don't have to tell you, students of 2022, how something invisible and unseen can enter into the world and totally uproot your lives. Pride has a similar effect. See, pride, it's an invisible killer, like, like termites, carbon monoxide, or cancer to our souls. Pride enters in, festers, and corrupts every part of our lives. Pride is the great reverser taking everything that is true about life, about God, about humans, and flipping it on its head. That's why it's worth us talking about. The Bible has a lot to say about pride. Even 1 Peter that we're in, in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, you see it on page 40 of your handout. It says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, if pride warrants God's direct opposition... It's worth us talking about too. To live as elect exiles is to combat pride and to embrace humility. So maybe some of you are here and you know that pride is a struggle of yours. If that's you, thanks for coming. The fact that you're acknowledging that you struggle with pride in your life, that means you're well on your way to eradicating it. Maybe you're here and you don't really think you struggle much with pride. Maybe you're coming here with your friend. You're curious about the yellow room. 
Well, that's you. I think you may find that there's actually a lot of ways that this could be relevant for your life too. So to talk about pride, we're going to be looking at Pharaoh from Exodus 10. See, what the Pharaoh does, he provides an excellent and helpful case study to see what happens when pride enters in and infects a victim. From Pharaoh, we will be able to identify what pride is, what it looks like, its end result, and even the hope for proud people. So before we do that, let's get into a little bit of context of Exodus 10 that we'll be looking at. See, the book of Exodus, we're, that's the second book of the Bible, really early Old Testament. God's people, the Israelites or the Hebrews, moved into Egypt at the end of Genesis to take refuge from a famine that plagued the entire known world. They went to Egypt because Joseph, an Israelite, ascended to become the second command of Egypt. So his people were welcomed in and treated like royalty. That's how Genesis ends. However, when Exodus begins, we have a time lapse that happens. About 400 years pass. And as the years passed, the kings of Egypt or the pharaohs, they forgot about Joseph. They forgot his status. And all they noticed was there was a foreign Israelite people and they were growing. The kings of Egypt became intimidated by the numbers and fearful that these strangers would overthrow their command to overtake Egypt. So they enslaved them. Think like American slavery, forced labor, terrible conditions, dehumanizing. That's the type of slavery that these Israelites were put under. In fact, the Egyptians went even so far to commit genocide against the Hebrew male babies that were born. As the Israelite people were enslaved, as they were experiencing this, they were groaning, asking God for help. And then in Exodus 2, God remembers his people. So God, as a result, chose Moses, a Hebrew man, to lead his people out of Egypt into the chosen land that God has set aside for them. Moses and his brother Aaron would confront the Pharaoh multiple times, telling him to let the people go. But Pharaoh refused, stating that he had no reason to listen to their God because Pharaoh in his mind was God himself. So God, as a result, unleashes plagues against Pharaoh, plague after plague, revealing to Pharaoh who he is. So Exodus 10, where we're going to look at this morning, we're right in the middle of 10 plagues that God is unleashing on Egypt. In fact, Exodus 10 is the eighth plague. And what happens over and over again, there's a cadence and a rhythm to these plagues. Pharaoh hardens his heart and refuses to let the people go. This cadence becomes God does mighty sign. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let him go. Moses and Aaron go back in and say, let him go or another plague will happen. Rinse and repeat. So because this is the eighth plague at this point, Egypt is in shambles and Pharaoh is harder than ever. That's where we're going to be this morning. And that's what's going to help us talk about pride. So I am going to, um, I'm going to pray. We're going to read Exodus 10. Actually, we're going to do it the other way around. I'll read, then pray, and then we'll talk about it. 
So it's Exodus 10 verses 1 through 20. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of your servants and all of the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on this earth to this day. And they turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back into Pharaoh. And he said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But Pharaoh said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No. Go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locust, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land and all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And it was morning and the east wind had brought the locusts and the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as have never been seen before, nor will ever be seen again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained neither tree nor plant the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord, your God and against you. Now, therefore forgive my sin, please only this once and plead with the Lord, your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which filled the locusts and drove them out into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for bringing us here this morning. God, thank you that we can open up your word and that we can listen to it and that we can apply it to our lives. God, be with us this morning. We recognize that your word is only clear to us through your spirit at work, through you um, empowering us. So God, I ask for you to do that. God, help us leave here differently than we came in as a result of your word. In your son's name, amen. So, first point, what is pride? 
As we look at our passage, there are two reasons why God is continuing to unleash these plagues in verses two and three. Uh, In verse two, at the end of it, it says, he's doing it that you may know that I am the Lord. God is using the plagues to demonstrate exactly who he is. He is Lord. He is God. He is Yahweh. These plagues show who God is. Second reasons in verse three, God says to Pharaoh through Moses, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? It's interesting, he says humble here because Pharaoh is full of pride. If he humbled himself, he would let the people go. See, this is what Pharaoh is to do. And this is what pride does. Pharaoh is to acknowledge God as Lord, God as Yahweh, instead of Pharaoh saying, I'm God, and I can do what is right in my own eyes. See, if you look on the page 41, there's a fill-in here. See, this is what pride is. Pride is someone putting themselves in the place of God. Pride is someone putting themselves in the place of God. Pride is someone saying, I am God. God, you are not. Pride says, I must exalt myself. I must not exalt God. C.S. Lewis says this of pride. It's um, on page 40 of your handout. He says, pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. Pride says life is all about me. Life is all about you. See, it takes what is true about the world and reverses it. See, what's true about the world is that the spotlight belongs on God. God is creator. Man is creation. But what pride does, it reverses it. And it says, man is God. Creation should be worshiped and creator should be cast aside. That means pride, by its very definition, puts us in opposition to God himself. If God is about his glory and pride says life is about my glory, only one can be true. Pride is the natural disposition of the human heart. Why submit your life to God if he's lesser than you? Why would you need to answer for sin if you are the only one who's worth answering to? Why exalt God if I can exalt myself? This is the worldview of pride. This is what it does. Pharaoh is embodying this because God creator is telling him to do something. And he's like, I don't need to listen to you. Pharaoh embodies pride. That's what it looks like. So if Pharaoh embodies it, how does it manifest it through him? That's your second point. It's manifested through a tinted reality. There are two ways pride tints Pharaoh's reality. We're going to start talking about these by looking at verses 7 through 11. See, in verse 7, Pharaoh's servants, they go up to him. Moment of clarity. They're like, dude, Egypt is falling apart. We need to let them go. So it seems like Pharaoh listens. In in verse 8, he calls Moses and Aaron in and he tells them, okay, you can let the people go. But then there's a but in verse eight. 
He asked them, but who will go? Moses says in verse nine, exactly what he's been telling them. Everyone, men, women, children, their livestock, everyone will go. And then in verses 10 through 11, do you notice that Pharaoh freaks out? I'm just going to reread it. Verses 10 and 11. It said, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go, which is ironic as he is. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord for that's what you're asking. Isn't his response weird? Evil has entered your mind. Only take the older ones because that's what you're asking. As the readers were like, no, (laughs) he just said everyone, not the older men. What's happening here? Friends, this is your first example of gaslighting in the Bible. Because Pharaoh's pride has morphed his reality. This is what pride does. Pharaoh's thinking that he is hearing something different than what Moses is actually saying from his mouth. Pride becomes a morphed perspective in which you see everything the way that you want to see it. When I was in elementary school, I used to ski. And my mom gifted me this one time with some yellow tinted ski goggles. And I hated them. They made everything look awful. Never wear yellow tinted ski goggles when you ski because the ski look, or the snow looks like pee and it's weird. Don't do it. I hated it. But I think back to that because that's, that's what pride does. It becomes a hideous tint in which, in which everything in reality looks discolored. Everything in, the, in reality has shifted because you have this lens of pride covering and tinting everything. What we'll see is that there's two tints to pride. There are two different me-centered colors that pride reveals itself through. And those are both on your outline. The first tint is an inflated view of self. An inflated view of self. See, the inflated view of self says, I'm better than you. I'm in control. When people think of pride, this is what people classically think of. The inflated view of pride makes yourself the hero. You are the hero of every story. Pharaoh did this by his response in verses 10 and 11. When he was gaslighting Moses, he was manipulating what Moses had to say into the way he wanted things to be. Because in Pharaoh's mind, he's right, he's in control, he's God, so he can even change reality to what he wants it to be. This is what the inflated view of, of pride does. It tints and shades everything into the color that you want it to be. C.S. Lewis says this about the inflated view of pride. You'll see it on page 40. It says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only of having something more than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. We all know people who look at life this way. To them, everything's about them. They are the hero of their own life, 
and they think everyone else should see them as the hero. This is the person who fails an exam because they're partying or playing video games all weekend. They get their exam back and say, the professor's such a jerk. Why would he do this to me? It's the person who they, they graduate, they leave school, and they think to themselves, man, everyone's going to miss me when I'm gone. How will they ever survive without myself? Or it's the guy who he makes an inappropriate advance on a woman. The woman rightly and firmly says no. And the guy responds, why are you being so mean? I was only asking. It's like, no, you're being a jerk. But this is what pride does. It produces a morphed reality in which everyone else is wrong. And the inflated view says, I'm always right. To be honest, I I chronically struggle with pride, and I was literally struggling with this as soon as I got my focus packet. Because I was assigned this room and the gym classroom over there. And in my mind, I'm like, why aren't I scheduled in the gymnatorium? I should have more seats. I should have a bigger audience. People need to hear what I have to say. Aren't I a good enough speaker that I deserve the gymnatorium? That's just the inflated view of pride. That is me making myself the hero of my own story. That's the first view of pride. The second view, the second tint of pride is the deflated view of oneself. It's the deflated view of oneself. This is when the individual sees himself as the victim. Pharaoh demonstrates this too verse 17, um, the, the, the plague is happening. And you see how he like kind of hastily calls in Moses and Aaron. And he says, remove this death from me. Woe is me. <laughs> but to us as the audience, the readers, we see this and we're like, you brought this upon yourself. You're not earning any sympathy points here, Pharaoh. You refuse to let him go. This is what they said would happen. But this is the deflated view of oneself. It's just as me-centered as the inflated view. But it's just the opposite. Everything is still about them. For something to be deflated, it must first be inflated, and the air just gets let out. The deflated view of pride is still just as me-centered. This deflated view of pride is when someone sees themselves as the victim in the story. They're always the victim. This is the person that says, it's the professor's fault that I failed. But you asked, did you ask for help? Well, no, he doesn't like me anyway. So why even bother? He wouldn't help me. They're the ones who say, I can't wait to graduate. No one ever talks to me. But yet they make no effort to be interruptible for people. Or it's the person who may be quick to judge and gossip about the cool crowd, but they're often just jealous that they're confident. And they're like, I should get the attention that they get. As a chronic struggle of pride, I struggled with this also when I got my focus packet, because after my inflated view of myself, then I thought to myself, well, you know, I shouldn't get my hopes up. No one's going to want to hear about pride anyway. 
I deserve the small rooms. You know, people are only going to come because the other rooms are full. So that's why they'll be here. I'm just the consolation guy. That's just as me-centered as the first one. So how does this apply? How do we know if we are living life with pride goggles? Are you the center of your own attention? Who gets the most bandwidth in your mind? Who do you think about the most? Is it yourself? Do you daydream? About, when you find yourself daydreaming, do you do so in ways that makes yourself the hero or the victim? Scenarios in which you come out on top and everyone's like, wow, you're so amazing. Do you find yourself daydreaming about scenarios like that often? If you do, you may be living in a me-centered reality. So because we're talking about this, I think it's helpful if we just take a pause here and ask, how do we combat this pride? If we want to live as elect exiles in this world, how do we take off the pride that the world says is fine and embrace the humility of living as someone who's an elect exile? If pride's the great reversal, how do we reverse life back? Well, I want to give you three practical applications in which you can embrace humility and take off pride. There's a couple of helpful resources for this breakout. Um, I really recommend The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller and Humility by C.J. Mahaney. A lot of this materials come from these two men. Um, I really encourage you to check out what they have to say. And particularly within humility, C.J. Mahaney, he gives us three, uh, lots of helpful applications. I'm just going to share with you three of them that I think are incredibly helpful for combating pride in your life. And these three applications, they're, uh, they're organized by times in the day. There's an application for the morning, an application for during the day, and an application for the evening. So first, for the morning, a practical way to fight pride and, and embrace humility is to begin your day by expressing thankfulness. Begin your day by expressing thankfulness. If you look back on page 40, um, this quote by Michael Ramsey. He says, thankfulness is the soil in which pride does not easily grow. I find that so helpful. Think about it. If you're so busy being thankful, thankful to the Lord, thank you, Lord, for waking me up this morning, for being my God, for giving me life and breath. If you're so busy being thankful to the Lord, there's no room to be prideful. To be thankful is to acknowledge that God is God and that we're not, and that everything we have, anything good, comes from the Lord. See, as I've been wrestling with my room assignment, um, this has been really helpful for me to look at the Lord and say, God, thank you that I can even give a breakout. God, thank you that I even have an opportunity to open up the word with people. God, you place where I'm at and whomever is here, but God, thank you for this opportunity. Thankfulness is the soil in which pride does not easily grow. Second application, application for during the day, is to take part in activities you're not good in. 
Take part in activities you're not good in. Or another way to say it is even surround yourself with people who are better than you. (laughs) What I love about humility, C.J. Mahaney literally says as an application, play golf. Has anyone here ever played golf before? I got a few hands. I love golf. It is so hard. (laughs) Golf seems so simple. Hit ball forward. It's amazing how hard it is for that to happen. Because if you're lucky enough to make contact with the ball, the ball's probably going 90 degrees in the opposite direction. All of these things. But it's so helpful because something so simple as hitting a golf ball reminds us that we are not the best person in the world. We are weak, needy people in need of a powerful savior. We can also surround ourselves with people who are better than us. People who are often smarter or funnier than us or wittier than us. There's something about being around people who are better than us that reminds us that we are not, we're like not the dude, you know? We're just people. And we are in desperate need of a savior. It helps us laugh at ourselves. Helps us embrace humility. I often surround myself with people smarter than me because that's not really hard to do. Uh, And third application, application for the evening. Embrace sleep. So I was like, yeah, sleep. Embrace sleep. Have you ever thought deeply about sleep before? See, as prideful as we can be as people, we literally need to shut down for two-thirds of every day. God doesn't have to rest. He chose to rest, but he doesn't have to. If we think deeply of the fact that we actually need to shut down every day, we're reminded that we're in desperate need of a powerful God. We are nothing in and among ourselves. And every time when we hit our pillow, we are just praying that as we enter our near-death state, that God will miraculously snap us out of it the next morning so that we can function. If we embrace our sleep and think deeply about it, there's no room for pride. So your three applications. Every morning, express thankfulness. During the day, take part in activities that you're not good in or surround yourselves with people who are better than you and embrace your sleep. If you do those things, I think you'll be well on your way to combating your pride. So why is it worth it? Why is it worth battling our pride? It's because of the fate of pride. That's our third point. See, the fate of pride is that God humbles those who exalt themselves. How does God demonstrate that in this passage? He does so by doing exactly what he says he's going to do. God tells Pharaoh through Moses in verses four through six that if he doesn't let the people go, he's going to infect the land with locusts. And then in verses 12 through 15, he does exactly that. He does exactly that. So um, 
there are two, as he does the, exactly what he says in verses 12 through 15, I'm not going to reread it in the interest of time, but while I read it, I want you to notice the repetition of all and holistic language in these verses. It's the locusts are infecting all the land of Egypt. It's going to infect every plant. The locusts are going to cover the skies, all of these things. The locusts are going to fully destroy every green plant that's been left. So why is this plague so thorough and numerous? It's because God is showing exactly who he is. Pharaoh tried to be God, but God's plague infecting everything proves that he is God and Pharaoh is not. Pharaoh, if you're so popular, you should be able to protect the plant, but you can't even do that. God humbles those who exalt themselves. Pride warrants God's direct opposition. It's the pattern throughout all of scripture. Think about the David and Goliath story. Goliath mocked the Israelites and their God. So God killed him in the most shameful way possible. A little shepherd boy and a rock. In the New Testament, in in the book of Acts, you have Herod, who's kind of the, the Roman governor of Jerusalem. He was the first one to have one of the disciples and the apostles martyred. He had James killed in Acts 12. And at the end of the chapter, the people were so happy that, Pharaoh, uh, that um, Herod did that, that they literally shout, Herod, this is the voice of God, not the voice of man. And at that very moment, God strikes him dead. Which is a terrifying thought. You went on your outline, Proverbs 15, 25 says, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. And like we said earlier, right here in 1 Peter, where we're talking about all week, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud. In fact, What is God's judgment, but his opposition to those who were too proud to submit themselves to him? Is people too proud to say, I don't need to answer for my sin. I only need to answer to myself. And the Bible is clear that one day, every knee is going to bow, whether willfully or forcefully. Pride warrants God's direct opposition. So we need to take pride seriously. But thankfully, we're not ending here. Otherwise, we would just be a a self-help seminar. But in fact, our fourth point, there are hope for proud people. There's hope for the proud. In this passage the hope for the proud is actually alluded to multiple times. The hope for proud people is God's mercy. There are two instances of God's mercy being alluded to 
in this passage. And what helps us see the allusion to it is that this is part of a large cadence. We're jumping in the middle of the story. This is not the beginning of the story. The first instance of God's um, mercy are the ways that the plagues progress. See, the plagues start off with just God turning the Nile to blood, which is devastating. It probably killed the fish, but that's all it did. That's all he started with. It wasn't until the 10th plague that the firstborn of Egypt were killed, which is even judgment against them committing genocide to begin with. God doesn't start there. He waits 10 plagues to get there. And 10 different times, God sends Moses and Aaron to the Pharaoh and says, let my people go. God's mercy is he could have let them go nine other times. That's the first allusion to it. The second allusion is this thing about Pharaoh's heart. Now, if you see how the passage begins and ends, it's, it's talking about Pharaoh's hard heart. Look at verse 20. It says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people go. Now, you may be thinking, that doesn't sound like mercy. It sounds like supernatural intervention. But remember, this is not the beginning of the story. We're in the middle of it. This is plague number eight. See, seven times before this, Moses and Aaron say, let the people go. Seven times, Pharaoh says no. And in fact, if you look back at those seven other times, the repetition is that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Seven times, Pharaoh did it on his own, that he's seeing Egypt slip from his fingertips. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm not letting them go. And in fact, seven, oftentimes a number of completion in the Bible, it's almost as if Pharaoh completely hardened his heart. And that at this point, God just has given him over to what he wants. There's allusions to God's mercy. He could have seven other times softened his heart and let the people go. This is what makes 1 Peter 5, 5, encouraging. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Yes, God opposes the proud, but there is grace and mercy available to those who humble themselves before him. I mean, look at Jesus. Jesus had all the reasons to be exalted, but he came as the form of a servant. Jesus could have played the hero and beat his chest his entire time on earth and say, people, bow your knee before me right now. He could have forced everybody to do that, but he didn't. Jesus could have played the victim while people were using him for healing and were persecuting him. He could have said, why don't people like me? What the heck? I'm God. And he could have said, these people are too mean. I'm not going to go to the cross. They get what they deserve. He could have played the victim, but he didn't do that. Instead, he humbly went straight for the cross. He was a servant even to the point of death. And he, as the most humble of all, died as the most proud of all, so that proud people like us can get life that only the humble Jesus has earned.
See, when we view ourselves in light of Christ, we end up thinking about ourselves less. Timothy Keller puts it this way. It's, it's really the main point of the freedom of self-forgetfulness. It's on the top of your outline on page 41. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. The gospel is what frees us of our pride. When we are so busy gazing at Christ, there's no room for our own pride. There's no room to think about us. Now, this, this won't be new to some of the Kutztowners here, but talking about pride, it, it always resonates well with me um, because in my, my BC days, before I knew Christ, of my many sins, pride was up there. In fact, pride was the forefront of who I was. I lived like Pharaoh. I exalted myself and I wanted nothing more than everybody else in every room to acknowledge how great and awesome I was. I was so self-conscious. I was so unconfident that I just needed people to acknowledge me. And I embraced a prideful facade just so people would notice me. And all that made me was a conceited, arrogant jerk. So much so that I had some friends of mine make me this. It says, this certificate is awarded to James Osinski, the Conceited Award. Awarded by two of my friends on August 9th, 2012. Yes, people actually made this for me. And yes, it's very petty. And yes, they were right. By God's grace, five months after this date, I met Jesus. God was merciful to me. He could have thrown me away as the prideful, arrogant jerk. But now he, he was merciful. And now here I am almost 10 years later, hopefully a little bit more humble than I was back then. Friends, this is the transforming mercy that's available to us all if we humble ourselves before the Lord. Pride left me miserable. Jesus as my Lord gives me hope. So I would encourage you, as you're here this week, um, think about these practicals. Don't do them just to make yourself a better person. Do them so that you can put things back in the proper spot. That if pride reverses reality and makes creation the center and creator off to the side, what the gospel does in embracing life as a chosen exile, what it does is it reverses everything back and puts God back as the proper centerpiece and spotlight of our lives and puts us on the back burner. Friend, embrace humility to give God the due that he deserves in your life. Live a life of humility, not so that people would like you, but so that you can live a life of worship. So what we'll do for the last five minutes here, um, since, since pride is it's a matter of the heart, we all wrestle with it individually. 
we're going to take some time for silent reflection. We're going to take about five minutes, which is going to feel really long, but that's okay. We're going to sit here in silence, and I would love you to think through this question. What are the ways in which you see yourself as the victim or hero in your life? Where, where is pride evident for you? And secondly, what would it look like for you to take those ways that you see yourself as the hero and the victim and put the proper spotlight back on the Lord? Take some time in silent reflection, and then I will pray to close us. Father God, God, thank you that you sent Jesus. God, thank you that that he embraced the humility that we never could. He took the form of a servant, that he washed the feet of the disciples, even washed the feet of the man who would have him killed. God, he, he died such a shameful death so that prideful people like us can meet you. God, we praise you for that. God, help us be people who live in light of that sacrifice. Help us be people who live as elect exiles by giving the proper due and honor to your name. God, we we confess the ways that pride has infested our lives and the ways that it has and we haven't even noticed. So God, we ask that you graciously um, humble us and help us be people who give you the proper due and spotlight that you deserve. Thank you for being our God.